step through there and lose oneself in another world. I am a fool. A tricorder is capable of recording, even at this speed. I've missed taping centuries of living history which no man before has ever... Dr. McCoy! Bones, no! He has passed into what was. Welcome, everyone, to Star Trek Essentials by Fantastic Geek. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. Matt, let me help. Today, as we bring you our final episode of this season of Star Trek Essentials, the quintessential original series episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. Indeed, it might it might seem a little old-fashioned or, 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 or a familiar route to declare this an essential, but uh, I was surprised, Pete, by how much there, there was in the episode, and uh, of course we'll get to that in due course, but uh, certainly one of the greats, one of the icons, and I'm really looking forward to, to digging on into it. The 28th episode of the first season, you know, back when they, they went past uh, 22, um, this won the Hugo, uh, having been broadcast on April 6th, 1967, uh, and it was the only Star Trek episode to ever win the Writers Guild of America Award. Wow. Well, certainly, certainly high praise indeed. Uh, and, uh, I, I didn't know that about the Writers Guild. We, it's, it's so oft told some of the, uh, some of the scripting behind the scenes and the back and forth and all that, uh, a story that I'm sure we'll touch on here, but, but that many a listener would, would know very well, but, uh, did not know about the old, uh, WGA win. Well, Pete, let's start at the top of the episode. Where do we begin? Matt? We begin our teaser act here on the bridge. There's beeping, there's rocking and roiling over a planet's surface uh, turbulence here. And suddenly Sulu's panel explodes as a result of this, our, our inciting incident, if you will. Uh, indeed, there's there's so much turbulence on the bridge that you see uh, Sulu and his uh, his uh, compatriot next to him rocking in unison. You see Uhura and Scotty and unnamed engineering guy. They're all moving to Pete. You might think that it's a continuity error that Kirk is not being rocked around in one of these shots. No, no. It's called acting. <laughs> it's an uh, acting choice. And Spock, of course, with the natural exposition to explain that we are passing, they are passing through ripples in time. Uh, Kirk orders Uhura because of the uh, turbulence to broadcast his past week's uh, log entries to Starfleet to let them know that the unusual instrument readings have led them to where they are now. So instantly we are naturally matt caught up which not not an easy situation in science fiction in 1967 in a show that went from relative obscurity to a phenomenon by the time that this episode had aired and and that's something that this episode does time and time and time again no pun intended this is the quintessential effortless exposition. This is natural exposition. Um, obviously, any Star Trek episode is helped when you when you need exposition. It's helped by the 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 mechanism of the captain's log to deliver that to the audience. But just the the there's so much here. You know, the notion that they're so far out that they might not make it. Send those logs back to back to HQ. Um, even in a little bit when uh, when we have uh, sick bay on the way is is the declaration when we have some of the the background here on Cordrazine, if you know the episode, you know what's coming and even if you don't, it's like you know Cordrazine is the ticking time bomb in the in the the scene, but still it's just it is effortless effortless exposition here. And once Bones is on the bridge diagnosing Sulu with some heart flutter, he decides he's going to risk a few drops of this cordrazine here, this tricky stuff that Kirk tells us on Sulu. 
Uh, and no sooner has he helped uh, and revived Sulu, there's more turbulence, and McCoy takes a gut full of uh, this hypo uh, of Cordrazine. And uh, Matt, um, I have a I have a theory. A Ooh, bit what's of your theory? Theory of uh, what goes on here, and there's you know the there's different time travel rules, right? There's usually two schools of thought. There's the Back to the Future school. And there's the Terminator school of time travel. Um, either way, you choose to look at it. And these stories I'm both referencing, obviously, well after sitting on the edge of forever, um, that McCoy reacts in such a way. And yeah, they lay the groundwork uh, a couple minutes later about patients who have taken a dosage like this paranoia don't recognize acquaintances etc cetera, etc cetera. but it's almost like he knows the turmoil they cause by going back through the guardian killers assassins i'll kill you first i won't let you you won't get me murderers it's almost like he's aware of the timeline damage ahead of time. Ooh. Well, and I mean, certainly within the, within the conceit of science fiction and time travel, uh, even down to the metaphor that they use later on of uh, eddies and ripples and currents, I mean, it's not impossible, even within that own metaphor, to say perhaps McCoy is receiving the first... Uh, the, the first rocking of his uh, temporal boat before everyone else is. I, I really like that, Pete. I, I, that, that's, that is a great, great theory. Thank you. And no sooner does he escape into the turbo lift that we get the security alert title card break. This is why, by the way, you should have two turbo lifts on the bridge. So when a madman is descending to the bowels of the ship, you can <laughs> try and head him off. But I digress. In Act 1, Matt, we recap with a quick captain's log here. Two drops, Cordrazine can save a man's life, but 100 times has now been pumped into Leonard McCoy. What? And with, with that knowledge, we see him slinking around. And whoever did the stunts, let's forget the far uh, away shots that happen uh with the stunt crew of the original series where it's it's very clearly an actor who looks nothing like the actor they're playing other than the fact that they might be male um you know <laughs> swinging their body around but whoever would block the in frame stunts that the actors did here we get the karate chops to the gut and the neck by McCoy to uh, transporter chief Kyle that, you know, my only other favorite move is the two handed Kirk hammer <laughs> blow to the gut or to the forehead. I had wondered too, if the inclusion of the karate chop, if that was uh, something kind of, you know, late sixties, multicultural, uh, you know, I don't know kind of at what point, um, I don't know at what point karate became something that, or, or martial arts in general became something that people were generally aware of. It probably would have been in this time, if not earlier. So the fact that here you have a, a nice Southern doctor who's been nonetheless trained in how to give not one, but two chops of karate to knock out chief Kyle, um was both television gold and and i had just wondered if it was if it was incredibly hip for the time no sooner are we getting the info about um you know the the dosages spock talking about the uh the information they they have from the past about people not recognizing acquaintances that uh, we learn that McCoy has gone down into the heart of the time displacement. Matt, something I think further supports my theory. Well, there is also mention made, again, via that, that tidy, effortless exposition, that the transporter had been focused on the center of the time disturbance. Um, so I like that the show, on the one hand, addresses that it's kind of convenient that you know, a guy who ostensibly doesn't know how to operate the transporter beyond, 
you know, pressing the the three go buttons. Um, how is it that he's down there? Well, we were scoping it out already. Uh, but Pete, are you suggesting perhaps that he's drawn to it? Absolutely. It is fantastic to see once uh, Kirk and company beam down, they see the now iconic Guardian pulsating with power. There's the oft-told story that um, the somewhere along the way, someone had requested runes be made, and it was misheard as ruins. Um, I don't know what would have happened if they had done runes instead of ruins, uh, also, apparently, art director Matt Jeffries was sick that week, so his assistant was the one that did it, and Matt Jeffries was not happy with it. This is one of the great all-time iconic, not even sci-fi sets. This is an iconic television, film and television set, this Guardian set, and I can't imagine it being any better than this. Well, I'll tell you what would have happened had they had uh, runes instead of ruins. Um, it would have been ruined. <laughs> Ooh, well done. While everyone is down there, there's a quick update from Uhura, uh, just kind of, you know, uh, updating the the ship as their progress. Um, she's near Kirk and McCoy, but 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 elsewhere, kind of out of out of frame. The search is progressing, uh, and Uhura says that McCoy is still gone. But hey, Pete, he's behind that one rock. Yeah, you know, to have him crouching around. Uh... As, as they're looking for him, this landing party of Kirk, Spock, Scotty, Uhura, and presumably two guys for McCoy to potentially kill. Um, looking around here, this 10,000-century-old uh, location, as Spock identifies it, and suddenly we get the, uh, the blotchy McCoy um, and Kirk and Spock then are posing questions to the Guardian. What are you? Incredible power. It can't be a machine as we understand mechanics. And what is it? A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. What are you? I am the guardian of forever. So this machine and being both and neither an alpha and an omega, Matt, not not a new idea, but a, a big idea, certainly for primetime science fiction in 1967. Um, Spock surmises this is a time portal, uh, which, of course, the far more intelligent uh, guardian says that's as correct as possible with a, a look that leaves Spock, uh, you know, like he's just been called a, a dirty, uh, stupid Vulcan. <laughs> Indeed. Your sciences are not as advanced. Um, and that too, it's a wonderful bit of, of story magic that I don't know what it means to be both machine and not, but to kind of it, to have it all under this umbrella of because it is so advanced, it can be both and it can be neither. Uh, and you, you can barely understand what this thing is. It is because it is. They're able to get away with it because science fiction, because, uh, because mystery. And it, it just works here. Well, behold, Matt, we suddenly start to see past images here of whatever productions they could get their hands on that they were allowed to buy the rights of to replay through the the guardian of forever here and before you know it mccoy has popped up calls them killers again and spock hits him with the vulcan nerve pinch to sedate him um and suddenly presented with this possibility as only science fiction does kirk is thinking ahead about going back. Do we take McCoy back a day? Um, the Guardian admits it cannot change the speed at which time passes. Spock, for the second time in this scene, 
is made to look less intelligent than he really is. He's upset that he hasn't been recording, that he's missed the opportunity to record all this living history. And it's that that allows McCoy to quickly come through and to tear through everybody in the scene and jump into this uh, alcove and back into time. And he has passed into, Matt, what was. What was. It's at this point that Uhura can't get the Enterprise on the, on the phone. Obviously not a phone. Um, and it's because, as the Guardian says, their entire past is gone, wiped away. And uh, if that wasn't enough of a, uh, of a totality for you, Heat Uhura says she's frightened. Because it's 1967 and she's the female character. Oh. Yeah, the the past couple essentials we've done have not had some great moments for Uhura. And, you know, when, when we go back and, and do some other ones, we, we got to find the strong of Uhura because this has not showcased the best of a character that was groundbreaking for that time. Ooh, I am I am scared, male characters. But um you you mention what the guardian says the the exact words you're beginning all that you knew is gone there's an enormous amount at stake here um on top of the paradox that they exist yet their beginning has been erased which if you're going to go by back to the future rules they'd start to uh to fade away so clearly they're operating under Terminator rules, right? Well, I think that you get a bit of an asterisk when you're, when you're on the forever planet, uh, that, that, uh, though there is a new, uh, a new flow, a new bank for time to pass through, there are still these remnants because time guardian science fiction says so. Although I agree. I, nay, I think we all can agree that time almost certainly uh, follows the Back to the Future rules, um, and uh, they should all be slowly fading away with enough time to hear the red-headed boy laughing as Lorraine dances with him. Because <laughs> um, time, though a, though a vengeful beast that will slowly fade you away, time does have a, a certain sense of timing. Well, I mean, they certainly leave you to ponder it, at least into some uh, Borax commercials there as Kirk admits they're totally alone and he looks up into the the blank heavens here as we break the act. It's a great camera move. Uh, they slow down the footage to show Kirk looking up. I think it's one of those things that had there been more time, more money, maybe shot in the more modern era where you could add something quickly they would have had a slower camera move or they would have shot it to be slow motion. But the fact that they slow the footage down, Kirk looking up, it, it really has this sense of the, the, the weight of the universe bearing down on them. And then it, it becomes an effects shot as they go from the background of the set to the star field and Kirk looking up into this great nothingness that now surrounds them. It's just a, a wonderful way to end the act. Captain's log, no stardate, Matt, because time travel. And uh, Kirk and Spock are almost immediately planning on going back and setting right what was changed, um, that they need about approximately a month or a week in order to be able to do that. Uh, obviously, they've got to go back before the damage to change it. And Kirk leaves each one of the landing party with instructions that they're to try um, after Kirk and Spock make their initial voyage back. And we'll, we'll, we'll uh, give her a credit after castigating the character earlier. I'm frightened. And here she wishes them happiness wherever they should wind up. Kind of ironic given what's going to take place. Kudos too that the story recognizes that these odds are so long that it's it's kind of a preposterous proposition that they're going uh, to to put in place here. Um, but as Spock notes, they have no alternative, which is just a neat, quick way for the story to say, "Yeah, this is out there, 
it's this or succumb to the vast nothingness. Um, and, and I mean, how do you argue with that? Your option is this or nothing. Okay. With that, they get ready to jump through the, uh, the, the guardian. And suddenly we're on a street. There's a Madison square garden boxing announcement poster and they materialize. And Matt, they're suddenly on some studio backlot tour. <laughs> uh, uh, that, that's the that's the Desilu backlot, no less, home to uh, Dobie Gillis and uh, and Andy Griffith and and and, uh, and others. It's uh, the 1930s. There's some sort of economic upheaval, which doesn't sound as bad as what Spock then terms it. It's the Great Depression. And uh, Kirk and Spock pretty quickly realizing that they need new clothes and Spock needs a story too. And Pete Hoover must still be in office because uh, Kirk sees clothes drying on a fire escape and decides to steal from the rich and give back to the poor later. Yeah, the, the Robin Hood reference, of course, made. But between the women seeing Spock's ears and them stealing the clothing, Matt, we have Chekhov's car. <laughs> we do. And I like here that the story isn't lazy. They need clothes. It, it would be easy enough to find the, the clothes line out back that they can quick pull from. But you can't steal clothes from two or three stories up without getting caught. The copper catches them. Um, and it, there's the... the iconic if not kind of vaguely less appropriate nowadays story of this man is chinese he was obviously caught. chinese matt my friend is obviously chinese his ears had been caught in a mechanical rice picker as a child the, the thought of even writing that in 2016 <laughs> i i agree it would not be written in 2016 i think that it's a credit to the buoyancy of the story that it doesn't come off as cringeworthy. You can kind of get away with saying, well, they're using, they're using the preconceived notions uh, and dare say prejudices of the 1930s of where they are at to resolve the situation. They're not, they're not uh, adding to the problem or that sort of thing. Definitely though, there's this moment where it's like, Oh, this this comes off differently than than the first time I saw this episode back in the eighties. Um, but it's nice to see that it still works overall. Let's let's just not do it again, you know. And then the way in which they escape, Spock again uses the Vulcan nerve pinch. They run past the twenty first um, Street mission and into its basement. A uh, little bit of time passage with the clothes on that they've stolen of course kirk can't completely button his red flannel shirt without having half of his chest exposed because william shatner 1967 but they estimate they've got about a week before mccoy arrives based on what they've seen uh if only matt if only spock had some way to tie his tricorder with the ship's computer for a moment Indeed, just Pete, we've all been there. If I could just plug in my phone for two minutes, it would all be okay. Um, wanna wanna mention, by the way, that in, in this scene and a little bit in the next, Leonard Nimoy's um how do I say this without without sounding inappropriate? The makeup that he wears, which adds a slight yellow hue to his skin to to give the the otherworldly alien appearance. Which is to say, his his yellow face makeup, it's a little heavy in in this scene, in this portion of the story, to the point that he seems kind of more yellow than not. I don't, I, 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 I hope that was not in any sort of, uh, I don't know, play off the, the notion of him as a Chinaman. Uh, I think it was perhaps just a case where they, they had the lighting to makeup ratio a bit off. It's at this point that a woman finds them in the basement there and uh, Kirk, of course, offers a, a cover story. I like the way that Edith Keeler is written and performed by Joan Collins, though there's a naivete about 
what she sees for the future. There's none about what she sees in her world at present. And she just comes right back at him. A lie is a very poor way to say hello. How we, the audience, are supposed to feel about Edith Keeler is, uh, is made pretty quickly through some, uh, some Hollywood standards. Uh, her close-ups uh, are, are done with a soft lens, perhaps covered with a little bit of Vaseline to soften things even more. The strings in the music play to her beauty and her kindness. It feels a little dated, but, I mean, look, you only have an hour of TV to... Set her up as a character, have her exist, and then, as we are told multiple times later in the episode, Edith Keeler must die. So you got to use all the tricks you have, including the old Vaseline lens and strings, beautiful woman. And the effect is dreamlike, even in this uh, time travel story, to see this beautiful woman later referred to as the slum angel in some of the forthcoming headlines. Um, of course, Kirk then admits to have been, have been chased and stealing the clothes, uh, but she needs help and she's offering them payment there. And the beady hatted Spock, Matt, he needs radio tubes for his, ahem, hobby. Indeed. Can, can you imagine Pete one playing, playing radio show as a hobby? It's, it's, it's such folly. Um, but they're, they're given that job to, to sweep up time passes. They end up upstairs in the soup kitchen. They, they get their soup and their bread, but as the bum next to them notes, it's time to pay. Now I don't pretend to tell you how to find happiness and love when every day is just a struggle to survive. But I do insist that you do survive because the days and the years ahead are worth living for. One day soon, man is going to be able to harness incredible energies, maybe even the atom, energies that could ultimately hurl us to other worlds in, in some sort of spaceship. And the men that reach out into space will be able to find ways to feed the hungry millions of the world and to cure their diseases. They will be able to find a way to give each man hope and a common future. It's on the nose, perhaps, you know, hey, our men from space who've found peace and prosperity in the stars are hearing her. But Star Trek has always been a show where we, the audience, are unseen characters. The show is always supposed to be about us. It's a great reminder that we're still going places, or at least trying to. Yeah, and okay, so she she thinks forward in a way of, you know, if if you're a bum, you're going to get yourself together. There there's a hopeful optimism that always categorized this show and to remind and in what could be a bleak setting in a bleak story, you're 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 stuck in one of the worst points in history with very little hope of success, she elevates it. And uh, through no small part of Joan Collins' performance of this role. There definitely is an effervescent quality to her to her performance. And I think it's part of the reason why the episode continues to live on. It's not just the, the conceit of the climax or the, the odds of the universe at stake. It's that she is the beating heart at the center of this story. Uh, and, and in this story, we have Edith arranging for Kirk and Spock to have, have a flop, you know, a place to stay. And, uh, and time passes onto Spock. He's underway with his radio thingy. Pete, all he needs is just five or six good pounds of platinum. But wait a minute. He's not even going to get platinum nor silver, not even some gold. Stone knives and bearskins. Quite the line indeed, one that uh, I know, I know. Voyager repeated as a little uh, nod of the hat to this episode. Uh, the story service at this point is done uh, regarding the impending visit uh, from McCoy. And uh, Keeler visits. She's astonished at Spock's um, radio setup. Yeah, he's attempting to make a uh, memory circuit. And, of course, she knows nothing about that. Um, 
Kirk's got bologna and a hard roll in a bag and some vegetables for uh, Spock, but she has five hours of work at 22 cents an hour if they go now. Go right now. Um, which again, you can look behind the story to kind of see the strings of let's speed things up. Let's, let's wrap up this scene with go work now. But you don't see the strings unless you go looking for them. It's just this effortless pace to it. And uh, yes, there's the multiple hands that this went through. But the final, the final product, the the episode as as shot and as presented, it just it just zips along here. Uh, we're quickly in the next scene. Uh, Spock sees some fine tools, and Pete he does a very unspock like thing. He steals them. Yeah, it's an interesting transition we don't often see spock cast in such a light and the judgment that she makes that uh edith makes on him having unlocked the uh the combination like a real pro that that they are somehow um criminals that uh you know kirk's able to pivot out of well, you know, if he says he'll return it, he's a man of his word, he's a man of honor, and that she'll buy this on one condition, walk me home. Ooh. Which again, okay, female character, uh, you know, writing for this episode in the plus, but there there's some minuses. And like the Ohura line before, this this one, while um, urbane to its its time, doesn't ring well um, in larger character service. Wherever there might be some bare spots, though, here Shatner is the one smoldering. We're seeing a rather old-fashioned love story, and uh, with the surging strings and the longing looks, it's just something that that works. Um, And as Kirk walks Keeler home, she asks if uh, they, Kirk and Spock, were in the service together. She wants to know more. She wants to help. There's, again, the essence of what Star Trek is as far as the characters' relationships to one another, where she's instantly able to pick up on Spock's archetype that uh, he has always been at Kirk's side as if uh, he always will be. Just to to the quick of the friendship between these two colleagues and that you know how many years out are we from the wrath of Khan and you know all these other events in the lives of these two characters and was set in stone so early for them so then the conversation turns to how to help one another did you did you do something wrong are you afraid of something whatever it is let me help let me help. A hundred years or so from now, I believe, a famous novelist will write a classic using that theme. He'll recommend those three words even over, I love you. Centuries from now? Who, who is he? Where does he come from? Um, where will he come from? Silly question. Want to hear a silly answer? Yes. A planet circling that far left star in Orion's belt. See? So, Pete, we have here, in many ways, the central tenet of Star Trek. How can we find a way to help others? Let me help you. You tell me how to help. These are basic words, but by no means a trivial question. Well, question for you, Matt. When Kirk says that a 100 years or so from now, a famous novelist will recommend let me help even over I love you, is he speaking from knowledge of those events did that happen or is this part of the the sweet talk of hey you're on to something and it'll eventually work out i i'm i i'm just gonna theorize i'm gonna throw that out there that's that's a really interesting question i've always read the scene as one where he's speaking about about real knowledge of the future and I think, too, to be writing this in the late 1960s and to say, okay, this story is set 30 or 40 years ago. 
let's imagine 50 or 60 years from now, we kind of, that, that's far enough in the future to imagine that we can start to turn the corner with our own human behavior. It's not anticipating, as to be fair, other episodes do, it's not anticipating, uh, you know, the, the, the nuclear horrors of the early 21st century or, or some of these sorts of things. It's saying there's a change in how we start to view each other um, from this from this writer. And I think in, in so many words, we're meant to say, well, if that's the 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 dawn of the 21st century if that's how people start to think well if you start to follow that through over the next 200 years after that that's how you get to captain kirk and transporters and pointy-eared aliens and things of that sort so i've always read it as he's saying you know it's awful right now during the great depression but there is this future ahead of us that 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 in his mind will be happening uh, if only we can make it happen, of course. So Spock tinkers, and as he works with this device that he's created, he's able to see the social worker killed headline, and he identifies this as the focal point in time around which their appearance and McCoy's uh, pending reappearance are centered. Uh, and it's also mentioned as he's explaining to Kirk that he's overloading these lines stressed as those lines might be. Uh, Kirk is inspired um, with the places that she's going to go in six years. They start to see in the future. That is to say um, the president and Edith Keeler are conferring. They're discussing and Pete, that's when the lines truly are overloaded sparks explosions, but Kirk is left inspired Spock then fills things in, though. Um, Edith Keeler will also die this year in a traffic accident. Both options are presented as equally viable, with Spock pushing, uh, then ending the act with the question, suppose Edith Keeler must die. It's ponderous. And to have them met, uh, you know, earlier in this act and to give this woman as important a place in their future history as they do 30 years prior to when we're telling this story. Um, you know, th th this is a, a, a really well done time travel history, important story, particularly at this time when it was being told. As the third act here uh, transpires, Matt, nothing says Great Depression like uh, horse-carried milk delivery while a hobo waits to abscond with the vitamin D. Indeed. It, it, it was all just so, so on the nose here. The, the milkman, the milk bottles, the shifty bum, however... You know, we can feel some sympathy. It's 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 been a long, perhaps cold night. He's hungry, um, but while the milk theft is occurring, McCoy arrives yelling at the assassins and killers to the point that he scares the thief off. So, Pete, there was that one day milk not stolen. Well, he asks the hobo, "What planet is this? Don't run! It's they, Matt, who do the killing." Future. Uh, proof of my theory indeed but pete i want to point out something else intercut with this it's morning too as kirk walks edith home have they been out all night oh my or should i say oh my <laughs> uh edith sees a future with men on the moon and taking money away from killing and death and spending it kirk finishes it on life Another view of the noble future here. By the way, Kirk goes in for the kiss, but uh, we quick cut back to McCoy ranting and raving. Pete, I think there's a whole other not-on-TV story that might be going on here. <laughs> well, they do speak the same language, whether that's of the future and optimism or uh, lust is left to the imagination. But McCoy with the hobo here, uh, the hobo telling him, listen, you sip too much of that old wood alky and bad things happen. McCoy is using his latent medical uh, 
lingo and scientific knowledge to try to ascertain where he is. He's looking at a biped who's small. There's good cranial development, however. Oh, but if I am in this era of history that I suspect I might be, I'd love to look at a hospital, but there's needles and sutures and pain. Oh, they cut and sew people together like garments. DeForest Kelly is wonderful as McCoy melts down and then ultimately passes out. The bum steals the type one phaser and uh, of course fiddles with it until he vaporizes himself. It's a, it's a nice effect in the remastered edition, by the way, the, the bum being vaporized, by the way, Pete, some people are focal points in time around which empires rise and fall and man might leave the, 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 the earth to explore space and go to strange new worlds other people are milk stealing bum who <laughs> whose death has ultimately no effect on the universe so it's sometimes you're in with the one sometimes you're in with the other it's an elegant way to dispose of the phaser which we've seen in other star trek and and other types of time travel stories okay now they've got the chip from the phaser and they're able to make the robot and the other thing and now you've really screwed up time so that they've used this conceit before of oh if you fiddle with the buttons it overloads and you're dead they take care of that spock meanwhile points out he needs at least two more days and now that we have mccoy back there's a countdown um but uh, Kirk must know. Indeed, Pete, he must know which of these two paths is the one to end up on. Meanwhile, McCoy wanders into the 21st Street mission, smelling the coffee. Edith says he looks awful and simply must lay down uh, on a cot in the back. He does look awful. I wondered if perhaps it was too much makeup. Here we are on the same mission set where where spock looked so yellow i don't know if it's a lighting problem or a makeup problem or both maybe he's just really really ill i'll grant you that i mean i haven't seen many uh many people have a uh cordrazine overdose so I'll, I'll i'll grant the story that there but in this wonderful uh small world moment that that i think you can only get away with uh, by using the proper kind of uh, camera movement and whatnot. Just as McCoy is taken away, Spock enters the kitchen, his back to the action. He turns around and McCoy is gone. Uh, the, the ship's passing in the night, Pete. And you really buy it. And it's off of that where we're back to the device that Spock has constructed and talking about how history goes after McCoy will change it, that there was this late 1930s pacifist movement that delayed the U.S. entry into World War II. Germany had just enough time to develop its uh, heavy water experiments and create the A-bomb first, and then with their rockets, they were able to conquer the world. Matt, Edith Keeler was right but at the wrong time. This is how history went after McCoy changed it. Here, in the late 1930s, a growing pacifist movement whose influence delayed the United States entry into the Second World War. While peace negotiations dragged on, Germany had time to complete its heavy water experiments. Germany. Fascism. Hitler. <laughs> One Second World War. Because all this lets them develop the A-bomb first. Edith Keeler, founder of the peace movement. But she was right. Peace was the way. She was right, but at the wrong time. What a disturbing notion that peace at the wrong time can tear down a society. Yes, it fits squarely with the notion of American action and American might that... that the, uh, the era, the episode is trying to reflect. And it's able to do that by using the, the villains and the source of the greatest evil of the 20th century. Uh, but what does this say about our ideals? Uh, to me, I walked away from this scene saying we have to have those ideals, but we also have to have flexibility and context in how to, how to achieve those ideals. And, and even sometimes when we need to 
go against those ideals in order to preserve them. Kirk, within the triumvirate of Spock and Bones and himself, has always been the beating heart. And for him to confess that he believes he's in love with Edith Keeler here is not a surprise to us as viewers, nor a surprise to Spock. It's the conflict that is created between these two colleagues and eventual very close friends that she must die, that she has to be sacrificed in order for history to rectify itself and turn out the way that we will be created uh you know stakes raised matt particularly when the stakes are imagining a imagining a, a nazi victory and um a, and all the potential of the future um wiped away i mean it's 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 unequivocal in the need for action to be done. Um, I know that this episode obviously uh, was uh, produced during increasing discussion and debate and distrust in the Vietnam War. Uh, I don't know to what degree there were people involved in the production who were just sure that Vietnam was going to turn out like another World War II where it was a clear, clearly the right thing to do. But there's no question within this story that, as, as is said, uh, at the end of this act, a third time by Spock, there's no question that Edith Keeler must die. Act four here, Matt, and McCoy wakes. Edith is there, and he's kind of playing this out. Uh, is he unconscious? Is he demented? Uh, pegs it to just within a year or two of where he actually has wound up. And, uh, you know, we talk about the friend situation that obviously Spock and uh, Kirk enjoy. Um, it's a different type of friendship, obviously amongst the three of them. And, and then the permutations of that triangle, but he reminds here, he's a surgeon, not a psychiatrist. It's, it's nice seeing him back to his old self. Um, albeit with the uh, loose lips about his name, position, and posting. Um, you buy it, though, in part because he's convinced that he's not really there. Um, so the fact that the story is actually seeding for uh, a couple scenes from now when she will casually know the name Dr. McCoy and Kirk will over, uh, overhear it, it's not clear that they're setting that up at this point. It's just... You find yourself in his shoes, despite the fact that you kind of you accept the reality that the episode is presenting, which is he's gone back in time to the past and he's actually there. So he should kind of cool it to not, you know, ruin things since we know what happens when you ruin the past and, and, and all that. But you buy his kind of dreamy state of coming out of that fever dream and saying, uh, I don't think any of this is here, but I kind of like the idea that you're here. So, so I'll, I'll just keep talking to you. And again, effortless exposition to, to set up the story later on. So no sooner has Leonard McCoy senior medical officer aboard the USS enterprise. That's not in the Navy identified himself here to Edith Keeler. We transition to where, um, Edith is at the top of the stairs. Kirk is going to meet her and she kind of stumbles a little bit and Spock comes out of the room just long enough to see it happen. And then once they separate points out that could have been where she died right there. Who's to say when the time's going to come millions more will die who did not die before. You've got to distance yourself from this Jim. At least that's what McCoy would have grabbed him by the neck and told. The, the writerly cause of the scene is clear. The need for the climax is, is something that they're, they're hammering home here. The needs of the many, Matt, not the need of, of the one. Uh, I, indeed. I, Pete, I feel like you're, you're one rewrite away from that being a, that just being a, a screen gem, but. Back at the mission, McCoy's all better and a little flirty in a convivial sort of way. 
he doesn't know what a Clark Gable movie is. Well, he knows what a movie is, but not a Clark Gable. But he'll catch up with her later. Well, lots of people drink from the wrong bottle sometimes, Matt. But uh, her young man, uh, not mentioned here as uh, James Kirk, but is going to take her to the Orpheum to see that. We then head outside to the street and uh, Kirk has the same reaction as McCoy here. What? Clark Gable? Stay right there. You mentioned Dr. McCoy. He's over there in the, uh, the mission as he crosses the street for this reunion. No, Jim. And uh, Kirk grabs McCoy and prevents him from stopping Edith Keeler's death. Stay right there. What is it? McCoy, he's a... No, Jim. this heartbreaking moment that the episode has has made clear to us simply must occur it's uh it's that tough decision that that must be made and in in the cruel irony it's not let me help you it's you know others must be helped by by your loss here and uh at this point pete there's there's not much left that the story has to say and uh the story wisely doesn't linger they return and decide to get the hell out of there. Well, as they dissolve back to the planet and, and Scotty asks what happened, that they only left the moment ago, we learn they obviously were successful. The Guardian tells us time has resumed its shape. All is as it was before. Many such journeys are possible. Let me be your gateway. But it's amazing having restored it to the way that they have the timeline they really just decide yeah we're we're not gonna tinker around with this anymore so what is it that makes this episode essential pete let's talk about the price of sacrifice yeah to put kirk in a position we all know his his archetype as the 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 swaggering captain ladies man uh etc and to to put him in such a no-win scenario uh boy you know i i can't imagine that that would ever pay off as handsomely as it does i think too there are these two opposing notions that the episode presents this idea of sacrificing for the greater cause, uh, which requires the attempt of an objective uh, decision-making. And then this idea of let me help, let me help you. You are deciding how the, how the help must be. I'm not going to uh, force my, my views upon you as though they are objective. It's, it's two opposing thoughts and the idea that the idea that in the 23rd century, they will have figured out the balance and the idea that we can do that too. It's incredibly powerful and something that resonates every, every ounce as much or every gram as much now as it, as it did then. And to me, it really is kind of a beacon to, to say, let's, let's find out what is genuinely right, but let's also find out what is right for the individual and what works for them and not cross that line. This is the greatest episode of all of Star Trek that begins in a way you wouldn't think it would in that we're on the bridge. There's this medical accident and it leads into this all important dilemma of if this woman is allowed to live, she will do great things that will cause a terrible thing to happen and lives to be lost. Or if we let this great woman die, 
we will accomplish all the wonderful things that she's talking about. I mean, it, it's it's this philosophical horror, but I think one that, uh, whether it's through war or through other means, it's it's something that we as a society are so used to that we are blind by the idea that that people need to suffer for our for our pleasure. Um, it, it it's awful to say, it's awful to ponder, but but I think we all know it's true. Um, and and to figure out a way a way to navigate around that is uh that that's the great conceit of star trek where you're able to say well there you are watching and something 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 that you need to figure out then you get to be like us on the enterprise it's it's a challenge and you throw on top of all of that weight the tremendous strength of the bond between kirk spock and mccoy that adds this polished varnish even towards the end of this first season of a science fiction show on nbc in 1966-67 well pete though this is the the end of our first season of star trek essentials and though we are uh concluding it with an episode from the first season of star trek we'll be back next week to talk uh star trek mission the uh the well, Star Trek focused convention uh, that's going to be happening in New York to celebrate 50 years of Star Trek. So uh, a bit of contrast there from the end of the first season to the end of the 50th year. Um, and uh, certainly we, we hope that we see some of you listeners there at, uh, at Mission NY. Definitely looking forward to running into our listeners and talking a lot of Trek uh, in this all important time coming right up on the, uh, the 50th anniversary. We will definitely be getting some Star Trek discovery news while there. So whether you're listening to us on the pop culture podcast feed or the Star Trek discovery podcast feed, uh, we'll be sharing that info as well as, uh, I'm sure just the general impressions of the, uh, the convention experience that we will have. And, uh, if you are listening to the Star Trek discovery feed, um, we will certainly update uh, throughout the fall as uh, as news warrants, and as we certainly look ahead to uh, to January and podcasting Star Trek Discovery. And we want to take an opportunity to thank all of our patrons who have headed over to patreon.com uh, slash fantastic geek who have been able to help us out with all the costs associated with bandwidth and all the other things we incur in bringing you our podcast. P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Fantastic Geek. If you've made it this far into the episode, you must know how to spell Fantastic Geek. So thank you for everyone who uh, has helped us, who continues to help us. And uh, those of you considering it, do, do take a look. We have some goodies there. But of course, Pete, the greatest gift of all is always the one that is gratis it is interacting with you on Twitter. How can people do so, especially as we as we heat up here in the fall TV season? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J, Ketelar, K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 8,249 followers, Matt. Who's going to be 8,250? Can't be wrong. Indeed. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast in a whole host of ways. We are a fantastic geek with the P and the H, and you can see us under that name on the dot com, the Gmail, the Instagram, the Twitter. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek again with the PH all one word. You'll like us today and you'll get all the Star Trek, all the Marvel Cinematic Universe all the pop culture you can handle. Well, with that, Pete, it has been a great, great run of these Star Trek essentials. We will uh, continue to do more essentials as time goes on, so do be in touch one and all. Uh, tell us what episodes you'd like us to cover, and uh, we, will, uh, we will certainly respond. With that, Pete, we have come to the end of our summer run of Star Trek. It's been great fun, and uh, the only thing left for me to do is to say bye-bye. You were about to make a medical comment, Matt?